listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Welcome to the show. It's the Frat Files Podcast, your fortnightly foray into guitar geekery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My name is Eric Daw. I am your, you could just consider me your personal guitar scientist guy. With 25 years of experience building and repairing guitars, beside me is my lovely co-host and wife, Melissa. Greetings. I will read the listener-submitted questions, and Eric will try to answer them the best he can, drawing on his experience as a professional luthier. Mm-hmm. We had a good day. We've been doing some gardening and mm-hmm. and uh, perusing some garage sales, which we love to do. Yep. Yeah. What, are you, what have you been working on lately? Uh, I just finished a bag, a succulent-themed bag. Custom leather bag. Custom leather handbag. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm working on another one right now that is a gift, so I cannot describe it oh. to you. It's um, a big secret. So secret. And then I've got two drawings I'm working on. How about you? What's on your bench? Uh, I have been working on some custom guitars, getting them ready, and I'll have them for sale soon. And for some reason, you know, things always come in waves. Uh-huh. For some reason, I have a whole bunch of massive acoustic restorations right now, and it's really slowing me down because they take so much time. You know, it's <clears throat> they they really take a, a lot of a lot more time than say like you know if somebody sent me an old Telecaster to restore. Uh, acoustic guitars just take longer. They're just f- more problematic and finicky, and there's all kinds of uh, you know bracing and cracks and neck resets and all kinds of stuff making bridges yeah it's time consuming so that's what i've been working on uh, several vintage martins and a few vintage gibsons uh, acoustic restorations uh-huh. nothing else no custom guitars yeah i mentioned that oh you, you missed did? that part i yeah, wasn't no, paying attention well, that's Sorry. all right that's all right neither was the listener uh yeah i've I've got three custom guitars that are going to be available um probably this week i'm gonna wow. I'm gonna send out a mass email and say, "Hey, here's some guitars if you're interested uh if you're not on my email list, you can get on my email list by going to pinupcustomguitars.com. dot com and I think you scroll down to the bottom and there's a there's a link there where you can submit your email address and I will contact you when I have guitars for sale. I'm not gonna be doing bespoke guitars anymore right right i think we've beat that uh into the ground so we won't we won't go over it again 
The Guitar History Corner. Oh yeah, it's uh, time for our new segment, The Guitar History Corner. I've got a question for you. Okay. How many strings does a bass guitar have? Four. Typically four. That's the kind of bass I like. (laughs) Uh, But there are bass guitars that have five and even six strings. Uh Uh-huh. If you had to guess what year the first six-string bass was made, what would your guess be? Six-string? Yeah, the first six-string bass. Um, 43, 48, 57. That's not what I thought you'd say. 73. You're closer than, well, okay. That's that's several guesses. (laughs) I thought that uh, you would guess like, you know, the 80s or something. Oh. So... The first commercially available six-string bass was made by Dan Electro. Uh-huh. Isn't that surprising? It surprises a lot of people. I'm it does not surprise my wife. But I know the listener is going, oh, wow. Of course, they probably already know this. This is the Guitar History Corner. Oh. <laughs> um, I know little you're enough. Cl- you're I'm clipping so, sorry. so hard. I'm too close to the mic. I know little enough about the history of guitars that you could tell me that aliens invented the six string bass and I would not be surprised. I'm sorry. Well, Dan Electro invented the six string bass, which is kind of cool. You know, it just is surprising because they're not really known for their basses. And in what year? Uh, in 1958, they had their first six string bass. It's called a, a model 4623, the longhorn bass, you know, it looks like this super cool. Uh huh. It's basically a guitar that's just tuned an octave lower. Uh, and Dwayne Eddy kind of made it famous uh, back then. You he... know what they should have named him? Hmm. Dwayne the Bathtub. I'm drowning. <laughs> All right. That's, that's getting edited out. So... Uh, Dan Electro made the first six-string bass, which surprised me. I mean, I guess, I think I already knew this, but I it just, uh, when you think of a five- or six-string bass, you think of, like, funk bass, like slap bass, and, you know, goofy-looking uh, Dr. Seuss basses with the long, oh yeah, you know, the, the bodies that look like they're melting. Yeah. And, you know, flame purple mm-hmm. bass. You know what I mean? Yep. You don't know what I mean. You don't care. This is going really well. <laughs> Anyhow, Dan Electro started the uh, the six-string bass thing in, in the 50s. And uh, the next commercially available one that I'm aware of was made by Fender. Fender made something called a bass six from 1961 to 1975. What a creative name. The bass six. And it was also, basically, it was kind of, is like a short string bass, six strings, and it was just tuned an octave lower than a regular guitar. Not a baritone, tr- truly a bass guitar. Um, but uh, that's a little bit of history on the six-string bass. Well, what's a baritone, then? A baritone guitar is 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 a shorter scale, uh-huh. and they have they're strung with guitar strings, and uh, a bass guitar usually has a, a much longer scale length oh yeah i see 
Uh, and baritone guitars almost never use this the standard guitar tuning. They are usually tuned a fourth lower than a guitar. Hmm. Yeah. Usually. Fascinating. You can tune it however you want, and everybody does, but... But yeah, they are. It is different. It is different. Anyhow, that's the guitar history corner. What'd you think? Fascinating. Do you care? I am. I learned so much. Oh yeah. All right. Nobody cares. They do. If you like the guitar history corner, uh, maybe we'll keep doing it. I don't know. Is it worth doing? I'm yeah. Just, I'm just killing time while I'm looking for the right thing to click here. Oh, here it is. Oh, thank heavens. Jeez. Hi, Eric and Melissa. This is Earl calling from Boston. I actually just finished up uh, listening to the most recent episode uh, where you gave some tips on Floyd Rose maintenance, specifically uh, making sure you got new crispy Allen keys to make sure you don't round out all the bolt heads on them. Uh, I thought I'd call in with another tip that I use. I work on a lot of Floyd Roses, for better or worse. Uh, rust is like the mm-hmm. number one enemy of the Floyd Rose. Yep. There's lots of little nooks and crannies, sweaty hands and gross sweat get in there and just corrode everything. Uh, Deoxit D5, the contact cleaner that you probably already have for cleaning out noisy pots. Uh, spray a little of that in all the nooks and crannies. Let it sit a couple seconds. Wipe it all out of there. goes a long way to freeing up all the little all t- bolts that just get somehow welded together with human goo. Uh, Deoxid D5, best thing you can do for yourself. Uh, thank you guys. Hope you use this. Very nice. Thank you for the tip. I like it. It's, he's absolutely right. What, you know, there's a lot of moving parts on a Floyd Rose trim, and once they start to rust, uh, it can be over. It could be the death knell for your, for your beloved Floyd Rose trim. They'll just seize up, and then you have problems. Thank you for the call. Hey, Eric and Melissa, this is Warren in Alberta. It's been a little while since I've called in. Uh, last time I filled up your answer machine. I try not to do that this time. <laughs> Anyways, I've got a question about um, regluing brace ends, loose brace ends. On kind of nicer guitars, they're tucked, you know, into the lining, which is always more stable, I think. Um, but if they become loose there, say the last inch or half an inch or so, and everything else is still really tight, it becomes really hard to get in there and clean out the, um, you know, clean out the joint or the glue, the old glue, and uh, and then get something else in there to hold it. So I was just wondering if you just take a just a moment and uh, outline your kind of steps that you take when you are, um, you know, looking at some kind of problem like that. And, yeah, appreciate that. Hope Everything is going well, and uh, appreciate the podcast as always. Thank you. Bye. You bet. Thank you. When I'm gluing loose braces, uh, you know whether it's just the very end or whether it's any section of the brace, you have to clean up the old glue to make it stick. Um, a lot of a lot of vintage guitars, like old Gibsons and old Martins, those are made with those are put together with hide glue. So you can you technically, if you're going to use hide glue to glue the braces back up, you can get away with not cleaning it out that much because hide glue will work with, you know, new hide glue will work with old hide glue. But I still clean them out anyway because if they've been open for a while, then 
it's not a clean surface. Uh, yeah, I just take a little bit of sandpaper and run it along the um, the open section. Mm-hmm. And I'll, you know, if you fold sandpaper in half, then it has two sanding surfaces, and you can just floss it in there into into the loose brace section and uh, clean it up that way. And then you can blow it out with uh, compressed air or with your air compressor. And that usually works. That usually does the trick. Sometimes you have to. Um, I can. I'll take a if if it's if it's loose, but there's just hardly any gap. You can take something like a guitar pick and slide it in there along the brace and open it up a little bit. And you know you wedge something in there so that it opens up a little bit more so that you can clean it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, just clean it out with some sandpaper. Get a good surface there for gluing. It's very hard to use hot hide glue, but I I try to do that when I can because I just like hot hide glue so much. But if you're working on a brace way down in the guitar, sometimes hot hide glue really isn't a choice because it it sets up so quickly that you have to work fast. And sometimes working fast isn't really an option when you're gluing braces, so it's okay to default to tight bond. Uh, T.J. Thompson sells some really great tools for, uh, you know, calls and magnets and things that that work fast in in gluing braces and so uh those are those are kind of handy and i have some of his tools so that's a little bit about gluing braces how was that very interesting did i yeah i'm sure did i uh cover all his questions i think i did i think so yeah all right we have another question but this guy got tricky and made it complicated for me and instead of calling he emailed me an audio file and now i have to go in here and find it and then figure out how to play it this may or may not work i don't know guy got fancy let's see hey eric and melissa it's brannon calling from the cornfields of indiana and hope you guys are doing well i haven't submitted a question in a while but i continue to faithfully listen to your fortnightly forays and appreciate all the knowledge and love the podcast thanks so much for what you guys do um, cool connection. Rick Tish, who you spoke to a few podcasts back about his neck heating iron press. Uh, he's a local guy here in the same town that I'm in, Marion, Indiana. So I've been into Players Gear Music, his shop, and have met him and uh, thought it was cool that you were plugging his product. And uh, it was interesting to get some more of his backstory and uh yeah so thanks for chatting with him i thought that was fun um as for a question i just put a new switch in my mexican telecaster it's from the early 90s and the switch had gotten a little crackly so i thought i'd upgrade it and it just uh triggered a a thought to ask you what kind of switches you prefer and why um i went with the uh, oak Oak grigsby three-way switch and just traditional wiring uh, but for your uh, Fender style guitars, do you prefer the CRL switches or what do you think of the Oak Grigsby's? I know it's hard to beat a switchcraft for uh, toggle switches, but uh, what's your preferred switch and why? I'd be interested to know. 
Uh, I've got some other questions kicking around, but I'll save them for future podcasts. And uh, thanks so much for all you guys do. Take care. Thanks, Brandon. He seems to have a very good connection, a very good internet connection in that cornfield. Yeah, that's. Uh, I see why he sent it to your email. There must be some Wi-Fi, some some cornfield hotspot out there. This, <clears throat> his sound quality is better than our sound quality. It also sounded like he was maybe roadside, so maybe he's at some kind of a truck stop there using their hotspot. He might be getting abducted by aliens. Brandon, have you seen any crop circles lately? Melissa's... Uh, Sorry. <clears throat> Melissa couldn't make it tonight. <laughs> Switches. I I prefer CRL, uh, the Central Lab. CRL is short for Central Lab. CRL switches. Uh, I like them the best because they're that. That's what Fender always used. You go back to, you know, even the early early Fenders. <clears throat> oftentimes, that's a CRL switch. Uh, there's a few times I use other switches because I CRL doesn't make that um I I use that five-way super switch all the time. It's a it's a crazy switch with like 22 soldering lugs. And I don't think CRL makes one. Uh I I have to use the Oak Grigsby one, I think is what I use. Let me look. Let me look at all parts. I get them from all parts usually. Uh, and I think it's an Oak Grigsby, which I never... Is that a guy's name? Is his name Oak? Is Oak Grigsby just a guy? These are questions that no uh, no one will answer. Yes, uh, no, I don't it's know. It's Oak Grigsby. Yeah, that's what I that's what I use. All parts has an, a part number EP0078, and it's a four-pole, five-way Oak Grigsby super switch. That's the only time I don't use a CRL. But other than that, yeah, it's always the CRL. That's the one I like. Thanks, Brandon. They're from the uh, cornfields. This episode of the Fret Files podcast is brought to you by Apex Coffee Roasters. That's what we drink. Based in Waco, Texas, Apex Coffee Roasters, they search the globe for the best coffee beans available. They roast them in-house to unlock the natural aromas and flavors that make each cup an individual experience. You can order Apex Coffee online, and you really should. I'm seriously, if you haven't yet, why? Just why? Fret Files listeners can use the promo code PINUP at checkout to receive 10% off from apexcoffeeroasters.com. That's apexcoffeeroasters.com. Hey, life happens. Coffee helps. apexcoffeeroasters.com. Highly recommended. Get yourself some. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. <coughs> Hi, Eric and Melissa. I hope you guys are doing well. I thought I'd give you another chance to not get paid by Stumac. I've been thinking about building a DIY version of Dan Erlewine's neck jig for fret leveling. Eric, have you had any experience with this or similar jigs? Is it the real deal or all hype? What are your thoughts? Thanks. That's from Lewis. Thanks, Lewis. You know, it's just something that I've never needed. It's something that I've never been tempted to order or try um, because I've done a zillion fret jobs without one and fret levels, and uh, I've never 
found myself thinking, gee, I wish I had a, a complicated way of doing this. <clears throat> Most necks have a truss rod, which is basically, it's pretty much, that's pretty much what the, the Erlewine neck jig does, is it simulates string tension. Well, yeah, I guess in some instances, in some instances, it might come in handy when when the truss rod is not able to um, make the the neck flat. But <clears throat> uh, yeah, what what you really want is to make the neck as flat as possible, and you can you should be able to do that with an adjustable truss rod. If that's not an option, you know, there's always uh, clamps. Right. Oh. I mean, you don't, you don't have to get a the three hundred dollar uh, neck jig if you want to build your own. Knock yourself out. I just honestly, I've just never found myself um, needing one, and so uh, it's I'll I'll just pass. Um, I'm curious what they sell for. Let's take a look. What did I just say? Three hundred dollars. How close do you think I am? Very. Five hundred and eighty-five dollars. Wow! Yeah, it's it's this guitar. They got a guitar strapped to this thing. It looks like it's being crucified. <clears throat> I don't know. Wow! What are you gonna do? I'm sure it's very fancy. I'm sure it's very nice. But uh, I don't use one, and I and I probably never will. Thanks for the uh, question, there, Lewis. When adjusting a truss rod before fret leveling, do you adjust the do you adjust to the neck fingerboard? Or the frets themselves. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. When adjusting a truss rod before fret leveling, do you adjust to the neck fingerboard or the frets themselves? I keep seeing notched rulers for various scale lengths advertised, and I'm not sure of their usefulness. I've always assumed that you would adjust the truss rod after checking for high or loose frets so that the frets would nearly would be nearly all touching a flat surface or ruler. I sometimes use a 24-inch level that I know is straight for this. If I'm really particular, I will mark the tops of the frets with a dry erase marker and scrub the frets with a straight edge and adjust or repeat until most of the frets are scrubbing clean. Is this a good method? Can you recommend something better? Do I really need to buy a special ruler? Thanks. I appreciate all your advice. I'm looking forward to the Fret Files Wiring Diagrams book in the year 2525. Yeah, if uh, man is still alive. Yeah, right. That's from Ron. Thanks, Ron. I really am working on my diagram book, my my uh, schematics book. I I've I have made progress on it, but don't hold your breath. Um, it sounds like you know what you're doing. This is what I do. You use a straight edge. <clears throat> the notched ones are cool, but uh, not really necessary because you know we're leveling the frets right. Not the fingerboard, so we want to we want to see how level the frets are. So yeah, I I rest a straight edge on the frets, and a notched one would allow you to to read the fingerboard too, which might be useful information. But um, yeah, when you're leveling frets, that's what you want is to get the frets as level as possible. So no, you're doing it right, and it sounds good to me. Keep on keeping on. Thanks, Ron. Eric and Melissa, thanks for the time you both put into the podcast. I really enjoyed the guitar history segment. Hear that? Hey, there you go. Well, I'm sorry about tonight. <laughs> Look, I try. I thought it was going to be cool, yeah. but it was a little bit... Uh, sorry, I ruined it. Got a little weird. 
and I'm learning. I'm looking forward to learning more from you about random guitar history facts in future podcasts. I've been setting up my guitars, and I really don't understand the need for so many of the so-called tools pushed by various vendors for guitar setup. Well, a lot of people thinking thinking alike here. Yeah. For example, string radius guides. Are they really useful and I'm missing it? Why would you choose to use one and which kind understring notch curved? Are these really better than just measuring and adjusting the bridge to set the string height of each string to follow the fretboard past the 12th fret? What do you do to set the radius or height of the strings? Thanks in advance for your honest and straightforward advice. Yeah, again, <clears throat> I don't have, you know, they sell these weird little under under string radius radius guides so you can see what the radius of your action is so you can see where what the radius of the string curvature is but i've never needed that because you already have that it's called the neck <clears throat> so you're you're setting the action to the neck right and uh that's going to that's going to allow you to follow the radius of the fingerboard you measure the height of each individual string off the fingerboard and that will naturally follow the radius of the fingerboard no matter what radius the guitar has so yeah an, an under string radius guide is in my opinion completely unnecessary i've never had one and i don't i don't know why you need one i don't know why you would and uh i don't have one yeah there you go there you go Please discuss if a repaired, broken Gibson headstock guitar is a good purchase. How do I tell if the headstock has been properly repaired? This may be a good way to purchase an awesome 50s or 60s classic guitar at a good discount. Thanks. That's from John. Thanks, John. You've asked this question at a good time because I don't have any for sale, so I can give you an honest answer. No, I'm just kidding. Jeez. <clears throat> I, that's a joke. Look, <laughs> it's a joke. All right. Sometimes I have a guitar that has a broken headstock, right? Sometimes everybody does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you've had this problem. Uh, so many times. <clears throat> uh, is it ever a good purchase to buy a Gibson with the headstock broken? If it's been repaired properly, and how do you tell? <clears throat> well, one way you'd be able to tell is, you know, a lot of times you can just tell by looking at it. If it looks like a mess, then it was not repaired properly. So... Um, it should look as good as possible. If they can tell you that it was fixed by a reputable person, and if they can tell you that they used hot hide glue, that's what I like to hear. Because when you use tight bond on those, <clears throat> if it ever breaks again, you can't glue it up <clears throat> and uh, expect it to stay closed with old tight bond in there. All that old glue has to be cleaned out. And if you use hot hide glue, new and old hot hide glue work well together. So that's why I would stay away from guitar headstock breaks that have been repaired with tight bond. Uh, is it a good purchase? If it's a good deal, you know, there's very valuable guitars where if the headstock breaks, I mean, that that's something that really does affect the value. It's hard to say anymore. You know, we used to say that it cut the value of a guitar in about half. But I don't think that that's true anymore. Maybe, <clears throat> I don't know, 20 30%. It depends on the value of the guitar, too. I mean, if we're talking about a an $800 guitar or an $8,000 guitar, 
then the ratio is going to be different. So right. it's, it's hard for me to just come up with a percentage, like this is how much it affects the value, plus how well was it done, you know. I guess one thing, <clears throat> here's one way I would put it. Would I ever buy a Gibson with a broken headstock? And just to be perfectly honest with you, John, the answer is no. It just, I just don't want one. I just, that, um, first of all, I don't, I don't think I own any Gibsons. Yeah, if you were a Gibson guy, though, and there was a good enough price, and if it was repaired well yeah. enough, you would go for it. Sure. But um, this is this is one reason why I don't play Gibsons. They because they suck. I'm a I'm a luthier, and I <clears throat> geez, there's that word. I I'm a uh, uh, I'm a guitar guy, and uh, I, you know Gibsons have a uh, have a headstock breaking problem, and plus they just don't get the tone that I like. I don't know. Well, I'm digging myself a hole here. Gibsons are great. Go buy them all. They're great, but um, if you're going to buy one with a broken headstock, make sure it was fixed by someone with a good reputation. Make sure that it looks nice, you know? If it looks like it's just a total mess, then that's a red flag. Um, and uh, make sure that it's uh, properly discounted from what it would be otherwise, right? Does that all make sense? I think so. I think so. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back. We've talked a lot about neck straightening irons on the show, and people write to me and they say, Eric, where can I get one? Well, until now, I didn't have anywhere to send people because nobody makes them anymore, except for my buddy Rick at playersgearmusic.com. You can go to Players Gear Music. You can order a neck straightening iron some people call it a neck press or a neck heater it is an invaluable tool in my shop i use it all the time i'd be lost without one of these i i love having a neck straightening iron and rick is making a really really stout industrial it, I, I think it i think it's the best one that i've used and i've i've used a lot i've made my own I've used uh, the commercially available ones that they used to sell in the 70s and 80s, but they don't sell them anymore. Well, now you can get one from playersgearmusic.com. They're $7.49. I know that seems like a lot. It's it's a tool. I tell you what, it's going to pay for itself a hundred times over. If you go to his website and make an offer for $6.99 and mention the Fret Files podcast... Six ninety nine, free shipping, and it's yours. A neck straightening iron, a neck press, a neck heater, whatever you want to call it. Playersgearmusic.com has them, and you need one. I'm telling you, it's an invaluable tool, indispensable. I'd be lost without mine. So go to playersgearmusic.com and check it out, and don't forget to tell Rick that the Fret Files podcast sent you. Hi, Eric. When cutting a nut, what is your preferred method to getting the spacing right? And how do you tell when you have the right depth? And how far from the edges of the fingerboard should the outer string slots be? Do you prefer bone or nut material, or is there something better? Thanks for the podcast, Jeremy. Do you prefer bone for the nut material, or is there something better? Uh, thank you, Jeremy. <clears throat> um, my preferred method to get the spacing right is one of those 
special fancy tools that I'm wow. always talking about that I don't buy. You mean a tool? <clears throat> so you need a specialized tool for this job? Yeah, it used to be that you had to measure and then divide, right? Mm-hmm. But then add back in the width of the string. It was complicated. So now <clears throat> we have um, spacing guides. And Stuart McDonald has one. Uh, and let me see if I can find it here. Um, string sp- I think it's called the String Spacing Ruler. This is what I use. Yeah, the String Spacing Rule. <clears throat> it's about 25 bucks. And they've done all the calculations for you. So, you know, because the bass strings are a little bit farther apart than the treble strings to make up for the fact that the bass strings are fatter. If you just did them equidistant, equidistant, then you would have, uh, it would seem like the bass strings were kind of bunched up. So uh, they've taken that into account. They've got this spacing ruler where what I do and what you should do is find your outer uh, string uh, placement. And to find that, you want to go about an eighth of an inch from the edge of the fingerboard. So the outer strings are an eighth of an inch in, typically, on a typical guitar. And then you'll use this string spacing rule to find all the other strings. Uh, Look it up. It's cheap, easy, and well worth the money. It's one of those tools that is is indispensable to me now. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so like not, not everything that these companies sell is a gadget you don't need. This is definitely something that if you don't own this string spacing rule, I, I don't know, I, don't, I, I just don't know why. If you're cutting nuts, I don't know why you don't have one because it's really, really handy. What else did he ask? How do you get the... How do you get the depth right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I put strings on. Once I have the notches started, you know, put strings on, and then you test by depressing the third fret and tapping the string at the second fret and looking at the movement above the first fret. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you just want to see just a tiny bit of gap there when, when you've got the string depressed. There should just be a tiny little bit of gap there so you know it's clearing the first fret. There's other ways to do this, but that's the way I've always done it, and that's the way I've found to be most effective. <clears throat> what else does he say? Do you prefer bone for nut material? Yes, I do. That's what I always use is bone. If ivory were were not such a... um ethical dilemma i would use ivory but you just we just can't we just can't use ivory so i use bone and it's excellent that's what i recommend i don't like the synthetics i don't like tusk or plastic or graphite or brass i I prefer bone thanks jeremy hello fret files podcast is there a secret luthier club that i can join where did you learn what is the best way to learn that's from Eric. Not wow. you, right? Was it you? No. Oh. No. Uh, is there a secret luthier club I can join? Well, you know, there's Facebook groups. There's um, the Guild of American Luthiers. 
there's, uh, you know, there's definitely some secret clubs you can join. Uh, get uh, as many books as you can. There's a lot of really good guitar tech and luthier, you know, guitar making books that you can just order. Just get, you know, if you see one, buy it and read it. There's all kinds of information online, uh, websites and tutorials and YouTube videos. Nothing beats experience, so that's good. Um, you know, get your feet wet and make a few mistakes on some guitars that don't matter because experience really is a great way to learn. <clears throat> and lastly, you know, find some people who can teach you. Find, uh, f uh, you know... F See if you can uh, apprentice for somebody or take a class or a course or a, uh, uh, you know, some kind of a tutorial. You can go to school to be a luthier, can't <clears throat> yeah, you? Yeah, there are luthier schools. Absolutely, there are. Very and cool. There, there didn't used to be. It, so this is, I mean, if you can't find a way to, if, if this is your passion and you want to learn all about it and you can't find a way to do it, you're just not looking hard enough because it's easier than ever, way easier than ever. Most of the resources available to you today weren't available for me when I was just starting out in the 90s. So there you go. Thanks, Eric. Good luck. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Long time, first time. I'm not sure if this question is blindingly obvious, but I haven't been able to find a clear explanation. So here goes. I play 21 fret T and S style guitars, lovingly put together and specced by a great tech here in Melbourne, Ray Carlton of Carlton Guitars. Cool. I come from an acoustic guitar background, so 21 frets is all I need to get into trouble, but I have no problem with 22 and even 24 fret guitars in my shred years. Long may they stay there. My question is this, other than number of frets, what is the difference between a 21 and a 22 fret guitar? Is the fretboard the same length, but the fret spacings are tighter on a 22 fret guitar? Is there a tonal or even mathematical advantage or distinction between 21 and 22? Is it a feel thing? I've read some comments online that prefer a traditional 21 fret neck, but this is preference purely but is this preference purely feel, or is there a difference between the two? Thanks so much for your podcast. It's fantastic to listen to during walks and drives. Keep up the great work. That's from Julio in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks, Julio. He's talking mostly about Fender-style guitars here. He says he plays T and S-style guitars. Those mm -hmm. are, uh, you know, that's secret oh, code. Oh, yeah. For, the code for you know, Telecaster wink, and Stratocaster. Wink. Right. Hey, okay. we're not supposed oh, to sorry. Um, and, you know, really the difference is not much because <clears throat> what happens in a 22 fret fender neck is there's a little overhang and then an extra fret. So the string, uh, the scale length is the same. The neck feel is all the same. There's just one more fret and a little over, a little fretboard ex extension overhang and, uh, that's really all there is to it. it there, there's no mathematical difference, anything like that. It, there's just an extra fret. When you get into things like 24 fret guitars, <clears throat> you know, the pointy the pointy kind of guitars with the 24 frets, uh, typically their neck is just a little bit longer and uh, goes into the guitar farther. You can't compress 
uh, fret spacing without really affecting intonation and other things. So the only way for them to do it is just to extend what's already going on with the frets by making either the neck longer or by making a fingerboard extension. So that's that really is all there is to it. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks, Julio. Thank you, Julio. Hi, Eric and Mel. Eric, what's the most challenging part of guitar repair? Are there jobs that you turn down? What is the easiest job you do working on guitars? Just curious. That's from John in Florida. That's an interesting question. Huh? Yeah, that made me laugh. Why? Because right now you're turning down lots of jobs. <laughs> That's true. I really am. <laughs> I am. Uh, I've been turning down a lot of repairs. Uh What's the most challenging part of guitar repair? Um, neck resets, uh, massive acoustic restoration, uh, refinishing. These are all pretty challenging. Sometimes dealing with with people can be challenging. You know, when you're uh, when you're a grumpy guy like me. <clears throat> no, I'm pretty nice. And oh, I yeah. I don't have too much trouble dealing with people. But uh guitar speaking and guitar repair, you know, that's that's some of the more challenging stuff, these like vintage uh acoustic restorations and stuff like that. What else did he ask? Are there I jobs think... you turn down? Yeah, I turn down all kinds of stuff. I I just turned down a job today, a really nice Les Paul a guy had. He wanted me to fix the headstock. It had a broken headstock in I know from experience to ask a whole bunch of questions first before I'll say yes. And uh, one of the questions I ask is, has anybody tried to repair it yet? Because there's a big difference between repairing a freshly broken headstock and repairing one that somebody already tried to fix. Yeah. And sure enough, somebody already, already tried to fix it. And the way they tried to fix it was by, he said, injecting with a syringe, uh, thin super glue. Oh, geez. Yeah, even my wife <clears throat> knows that's not the way to do it. Super glue is not a structural glue. It's not a, not a structural adhesive. So um, there are times to use super glue in guitar repair, but definitely not on broken headstocks ever. So what happens there now, because it opened back up, of course, but because he used the thin super glue, mm-hmm. and that was just open wood grain, like end grain, it soaked in. It just soaks in like a sponge, and now that wood is saturated with super glue. Well, good luck getting a a glue to stick to that very yeah. well. So I told him, you know, sorry, I'm gonna pass. Sorry, your guitar's ruined. I mean, it's not ruined. I guess you know it could probably be. It could be done, and if I had nothing to do, I'd say, yeah, send it to me. But, oh, my God, I've got so much to do, and I there's I can't do it all, guys. I can't. I just can't. So I have to turn down some things. I made a decision a few years ago to stop accepting things that I didn't want to do, <clears throat> and some of those things are, like, I won't. Like, if somebody calls me in the first, when I hear the word banjo, I just, oh, sorry. Nope, I don't do banjos. I don't do banjos, I don't do mandolins, I don't do ukuleles. And it's not because I hate them or because I think less of them or anything like that. It's that I'm so busy with the work that I have 
that I have to draw the line. So I can't, I literally can't do all everything everybody wants to send me. So <clears throat> I turned down a lot of things. There's a lot of guitars that like vintage acoustic guitars that are super cool, but need massive restoration. Like every glue joint is failing. The neck block has slipped. It needs frets. It needs a bridge. It needs a neck reset. There's a crack in the headstock. You know, I mean, the the, the dollar signs are just racking up. Just ka-ching, ka-ching, every little thing, you know? Right. And we're looking at a guitar that's like a 40s supertone on a good day, a $600 guitar. And they want me to do, you know, $1,500 worth of work on it. <clears throat> I A lot of times I just turn those down. Yeah. I just, I, it doesn't make sense. And I get it. You know, sometimes you've got grandpa's old guitar and it's like, man, I really want to make this a player, but I have to draw the line somewhere. So yeah, there's a lot of things I turn down. Okay. What's the easiest job you do working on guitars? Just setups and restrings. You know, somebody brings you a guitar and it's art, it's in good working order. It's just the accent's a little bit high and the intonation's a little bit off and you have to do a few adjustments and restring it and it's out the door. It takes you... An hour at the at the most. Nice. Yeah. Thanks, John. I consider you, sir, and your lovely bride as grade A guitariers. Guitariers? Since you don't like the L word. That's from Kevin in Beaufort, North Carolina. The L word. Jeez. I didn't know we were getting that edgy. <laughs> guitariers. <laughs> I'm guitarier than most. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for participating in this lovely uh, podcast if you want to participate and you should you can go to my website that's ericdaw.com e-r-i-c-d-a-w.com click the contact link and send in your question or comment there we'll use it as part of the show the other way to do it is to uh, call or text 757-774-8482 and uh, there's uh, nobody going to pick up that number it's just an automated voice messaging system you could call it at 3 a.m. if you want leave a message there you're not going to bother anybody I won't even hear it until we do the show 757-774-8482 leave your, leave your voice comment there and we'll use that as part of the show thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll talk to you next time good night <laughs>